you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Micah in the Old Testament. The book of the prophecy of Micah. It's in the Minor Prophets. I'll give you a little longer to find it, okay? <laughs> Some people... The Minor Prophets, it's like, you know, okay, it's, it's kind of a mystery, uh, but it shouldn't be. Yeah, if you turn there often, eventually you can find stuff, okay? Um, but I know sometimes I, I see when we preach out, when I preach out of the Minor Prophets, I notice a little more Bible page flipping going on until we can get started. So, hope you found it. We're in chapter 5, that I'm sure you can find quickly. chapter 5. We've already read this in the New Testament uh, in our opening scripture. We're going to read uh, verse 2 and consider that. Verse 2 of chapter 5 of the prophecy of Micah. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the coming of your Son. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for your relationship with the Father, that you are truly the Son of God, one with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And we thank you, Lord, for that relationship that you have that you've told us about in Scripture. And we thank you, Lord, that you've come to us with the truth about who you are. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the Savior, and so we pray that you would bless us. Father, bless us now as we consider this passage and other passages relating to it, and I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It's on Christmas cards. Everybody should be somewhat familiar with it. There's, Thank you, sir. There are two places in Scripture where it's found. The one is what we just read when it was originally given. And then as we saw in Matthew chapter 2, when King Herod asked his wise men and counselors where the Messiah was prophesied to be born, they quote it, but they kind of paraphrase it. Uh, but they paraphrase it in such a way that we get some pretty good insight in, as to how they understood this prophecy at their time. Now, Micah was an 8th century B.C. prophet. He prophesied about the same time as Isaiah. He was his contemporary. And there are some parallels between his prophecy and the book of Isaiah. One is the threat of the Assyrian invasion was very real to them, and there were other uh, invasions that were troublesome, and there was uh, worry and disturbance on the throne of Judah. And so God gave them this word and let them know that whether your rulers are godly or ungodly, there's going to be a ruler who's coming who will be godly, and that's the one that's been promised, the Messiah. And though, you know, sometimes we use the... Uh, not quite slang, but we use the phrase, he's a Johnny-come-lately. You know, some, some politicians, some of those in power, 
they seem to show up out of nowhere and sometimes they do well, sometimes they cause a lot of destruction and heartache. We find out that the ruler of Israel is not a Johnny-come-lately. He is one who has come forth in eternity. His goings forth are from of old, from eternity, actually, is what it's saying. From, literally, it's from the days of eternity. The word olam means forever. Uh, yamim is days. And in Hebrew, it's meh, means from, meyamim olam. From the days, it's plural, days of eternity. That's when Christ came forth. And many commentators and others who've looked at the passage in Micah have said, this really is not just a prophecy about Christ coming to be born in Bethlehem, but it certainly is that. But when it lets us know that this is not one that just is going to come forth when he's born of the virgin. This is one who's going forth, have been from of old, even from the days of eternity. And what that means is that Christ is the eternally generated, only begotten Son of God, and that that relationship he has with the Father didn't start in time, but it actually has been going on in eternity. That's the relationship of the Father and the Son. As some have said, the Father's nature is to beget, the Son's nature is to be begotten, and this is and the Holy Spirit's nature is to proceed from the Father and the Son. So that might seem like some abstract theology, but it's important to know who God is and how he's revealed himself. There's one true God. The essence of God is indivisible, and he is one. And yet in that oneness, he's told us that he is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he's not three separate persons. Well, it is three separate persons, not three separate beings somehow. And if you listen to the way people who misunderstand the doctrine of the Trinity try to describe it, it's just a monstrosity. They say, well, there's three people in heaven. And it's like, no, that's not what the doctrine of the Trinity is. Joseph Smith thought that. He claimed he saw the Father and the Son together in a vision. And the Bible says no man has ever seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who's in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. But he claimed he'd seen the both of them and uh, kind of hinted that maybe he'd seen the third one. I don't know. But God has appeared in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. And so that tells us who Jesus is. In John 1.1, 1, 1, as you know, it starts off and tells us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were created through him, and apart from him nothing was created, or nothing has come into being that has come into being, literally. And so Christ is put outside the realm of being a creature in that verse, because everything that's come forth in the creation came forth through him. So that excludes him from being a creature. We've talked about this before. He, as to his person, is eternal, one with the Father and the Holy Spirit. His goings forth have been from of old, um, or from the beginning, and even from everlasting. When it's quoted in the New Testament, when Herod said, Where's the Messiah to be born? The Christ, which is Greek for Messiah, the anointed one. Uh, verse 5 of Matthew 2 says, so they said to him, that is the wise men answered Herod and said, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. So they were aware of this prophecy of Micah and they knew it prophesied that this is the place the Messiah was going to be born. But you, Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. 
For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, many have said, well, they, it seems that as the men had meditated upon God's word and discussed it, and as the Holy Spirit had instructed them, you notice there's a few changes here. Uh, in Isaiah, excuse me, in Micah, it says, uh, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah. And here it says, um, but you Bethlehem in the land of Judah are not the least among the rulers of Judah. Some say, well, that's almost the opposite. They're, they're not the least. It's because as time went by, they understood that though they were little, and God uses little things to accomplish his purposes, uh, they really weren't unimportant because the Messiah was to come there. But if we look, go back and look at Micah, the original giving of this, and I think that's uh, where we'll be today. It says, but you Bethlehem Ephrathah. Ephrathah means fruitful. Bethlehem, very appropriately, the word bet in Hebrew, or B-E-T-H, Beth, that means house, and lechem means bread. And so if you, if you have a study Bible or if you've ever looked this up, you know Bethlehem means the house of bread. And that's because around Bethlehem was very good soil and very productive fields, and they grew wheat around there, and they made bread. And so Bethlehem was a city known for its bread, but it wasn't known for much more than that. Uh, but then it became important because it was the ancestral home of the house of David. Uh, Matthew Henry said that its uh, dignity, the dignity of the city of Bethlehem, came from Christ being born there. And he said, Christ didn't derive his glory from Bethlehem. Bethlehem derived its glory from Christ. And that's a pretty important distinction, I think, to be made. But if we look at the verse, we see it, it addresses and speaks to Bethlehem and, yeah, as, a, as a city. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephratah, or house of bread, fruitful, because the bread of life was going to come forth there. Though, it's, in the old King James, it says, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, the thousands of Judah, remember how Moses divided the people into uh, thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens, military divisions. We've talked about this in Hebrew. The word thousands is elephim. Uh, elef means a thousand. I always remember it. It's like it sounds like the word elephant. And boy, there's probably about a thousand things in an elephant. Okay, that's like a big number and a big, big creature. But elef, that was the mnemonic I used in seminary to remember that word. Uh, and then the plural is elephim, the I-M ending. So um, you were little among the thousands of Judah. When Judah assembled, and this was important, you know, because the Assyrians were showing up. They were starting to oppress Judah. They wiped out Israel in the north before that. But as they were beginning to try to conquer Judea, or Judah at that time, as it was called, uh, when Bethlehem mustered its troops, some have said there might not have been a thousand people in the whole village. And so as they mustered their, their Aleph, you know, some of the cities where, you know, they had Elephim, they had multiple thousands, you know, they had brigades that would show up and they had huge, you know, military might for cities. You think of Jerusalem and Lachish later and some of the other pretty good sized cities, they could produce a lot of soldiers. Uh, Bethlehem was a little town and when it's troops assembled, imagine the other men that had assembled from other cities when the troops were on the field, the ones from Bethlehem that showed up, it was kind of like, 
where's the rest of you? It's like, this is it, guys. If you know anything about the tribe of Judah, though, that wasn't a problem for the men of Judah. They were fierce. They were basically the Marine Corps of the ancient Israelite army. And so uh, the tribe of Judah was no one to mess with. That's why the, the term lion is often, or the picture of a lion is often associated with the tribe of Judah. But they were little. They were somewhat despised or looked down upon because of their small numbers. The Bible talks about, warns us not to despise the day of small things. I take courage in that, you know, um, because it's not size, it's faithfulness. And even though the house of David had wavered and they had some, to use colloquialism, they had some pretty flaky kings on the throne, as we've been going through uh, the historical books in the Old Testament, we've seen that. They had some good kings, but they had a lot of really bad ones also. Um, but yet there was in the city of Bethlehem faithful people. How do we know this? Well, because 800 years later, we read in the New Testament two individuals that were from that town, or Joseph, was, you know, his ancestral home was uh, Bethlehem, and Mary also was of the house of David, and that was her ancestral home. And we see these godly people that feared the Lord. And if you look at Mary's speeches, or her, her song, we call it, uh, where she praises God, the song of Mary. And if you look at the actions of, of Joseph, we see God had faithful people, and they came out of the tribe of Judah, out of the town of Bethlehem. So there was a godly remnant in that place. So though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, that when the troops assembled, what, Judah wasn't much, or at least Bethlehem wasn't much. Uh, but God took notice of it, and he says, Yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, uh, he that is to be ruler in Israel. The word ruler there can, can mean governor, ruler. It means one who you know, has the scepter, one who is in control and one who governs. So he tells them, you might be despised in the eyes of the world and even among your fellow Israelites for not being very big or not having much. It wasn't known for being wealthy. They had a lot of good bread. They ate well, but they didn't have much else. But he says, the ruler of Israel is going to be born there. And they, they understood that. That's why it's at that New Testament passage. That's why we open this, uh, the section in Matthew chapter 2 today to read that section. Even though Matthew 2, you know, some would say, well, if you're going to follow the liturgical calendar, isn't that more like Epiphany, you know, the week after? It, well, if you're going to follow all that, sure. But that's not why I read it. I wanted you to see that passage was known at what we would call New Testament times when we come down to the times of uh, the birth of Christ. That was known and understood by God's people that the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. Daniel had said that it would be 70 weeks from the time that the decree came forth to rebuild Jerusalem unto the coming of the Messiah, be 490 years. And if you look at Daniel's time and the coming of Christ, it falls right into that category. So Daniel told them when the Messiah was going to come. The promise was given to David when he was told that one of his descendants would sit upon his throne forever. We knew through whom he was going to come. And the fact is, God even told him what town he was going to be born in. He'll be born in Bethlehem. And we see here that the uh, men that were in Herod's court, and these would have been educated, wealthy men who uh, were Jews who knew the scriptures, they understood. The prophet has said, that is God has said through the prophet Micah, 
Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. So they knew that. Herod, in all of his wickedness, he knew where to send the wise men because they had gotten that thus far by following the star, but they went to the capital. They were from a foreign country, and so they didn't just come in and walk all over. They went and first uh, introduced themselves so Herod would know they're okay. Uh, notice how God got them out of there, though, had them leave a different way. And uh, they knew he's going to be born in Bethlehem. So the wise men knew this, and, and off they went. But he says, out of thee shall come forth unto me um, him that is to be, or he that is to be ruler in Israel. And they were told, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. And we've talked about that already. His goings forth, he didn't, he's not just going to be, begin to exist when he's born in Bethlehem. This is one, the person that's coming in the, in the person of a little baby is someone as to his person who's been around for eternity. You notice when the wise men came in, if we remember when we read chapter 2, what did they do? They came in, fell down on their knees, and worshipped him. You don't worship anyone except God. They knew who it was. It was God incarnate. They understood the prophecies. Later on, at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, toward the end, when he was resurrected, if you remember in Matthew, excuse me, John chapter 20, Tom, doubting Thomas when he saw Jesus finally because remember a week before he'd said you know I have to put my hands in the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side or my finger in the print of the nails and my hand in his side eight days later on a Sunday by the way Jesus appeared and told him here put your, put your fingers in my hand oh and take your hand thrust it into my side he says and you could translate it stop disbelieving and start believing and what does Thomas do it says he said to him my lord and my god no doubt about that that's absolutely what the greek means there sometimes people say oh well maybe it could be translated differently no it can't okay uh what is it hakuriasmu kahateasmu okay kurias is lord theos is god ha means the it literally it's the god of me and the lord of me and the god of me and what did jesus say to him remember when the uh, uh cornelius fell down in front of Peter. Peter said, get up, don't, don't bow down in front of me. I'm just a man. Remember when John fell down in front of an angel? What did the angel say to him twice in the book of Revelation? Don't do that. Get up. Worship only God. Thomas falls down in front of Jesus, says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, Thomas, because you have seen me, you believe. Blessed are those who haven't seen me and yet believe. Pretty clear. Jesus knew who he was. So did Thomas. So did the others. Peter writes in his second epistle at the beginning, if you want to turn there real quick, in Second uh, Peter, this is someone who spent three years, three and a half years with Jesus, was an eyewitness of the resurrection and of the ascension. And note how he addresses his second epistle. Simon Peter, bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, he's not denying the Father and the Holy Spirit when he says that. You know, if I mention God, the Father loves us, you don't you'd say, well, you didn't mention Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Well, you, know, you, you, know, it's like you don't always have to mention all three. The Holy Spirit is also God. Okay, God is a spirit. And who is that? It's the Holy Spirit. But here, Peter identifies Jesus Christ. He says, 
the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. As to his person, he is God. That is his divine nature joined to his person. As to his humanity, he is our Savior. He's the one who came, took our humanity upon himself, and then died for us. In the book of Romans, chapter 9, where Paul really is, is you know, answering the question like, well, if the Jews are God's people, how come they reject Jesus as their Messiah? Romans 9, 10, and 11 answer that very well, if you ever wonder about that. Because it's like, well, weren't they the ones that she should have believed, and yet they rejected him? That was already prophesied. God had said they were going to reject their Messiah. Remember, he is despised and rejected, and we esteemed him not. In Romans chapter 9, when Paul says in verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh. Paul really wanted to see his fellow Jews saved. And he said, if I could. But it doesn't mean that he he's trying to get cursed of God so they can somehow be saved. You know, it was impossible. God had forgiven him. God had saved him. God saved him. God had given him the righteousness of Christ. So Paul is not saying there's a possibility I could be cursed. He's just saying whatever it would take for them to be saved, I would be willing to do. That's what Christ did. Christ did become accursed for us. Remember Paul says in Galatians, Christ took our curse. He became a curse because it's written in the law, cursed is everyone that is hanged on a tree. Meaning, you know, as Christ was crucified on the cross. Um, and so he's, Paul uses that to show that Christ took our curse. He became a cursed force. Paul said that's a stumbling block to the Jews. How can the Messiah be cursed? Well, it wasn't his curse that he took. It was ours. Okay? So to the Greeks, the gospel's a foolishness because like, what do you, what? You, what? you know, you, you, get, you, you become changed. You come right with God by believing in someone. And the answer is, yeah, it's more than that. But that's really what it is also. Um, so he says, I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Note that phrase. It comes up again. Who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants. He's talking about their history. God did all these wonderful things to them. The giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. They were a people blessed above all other people. And he says, of whom are the fathers, meaning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the patriarchs, and King David, and the godly kings of old, and the prophets. Of whom are the fathers, and from whom, again, according to the flesh. He's not talking about his deity or his person here. But he's saying, of whom, from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. Unless anyone thinks like, oh, I guess Jesus is just a human being because he was born, uh, you know, as a Jew, as a member of the tribe of Judah. The Holy Spirit inspires Paul to continue writing. He says, uh, from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. By the way, that doesn't mean, as some try to render it, like, oh, may God be eternally blessed, like Paul, it's an expletive. The grammar is very clear. The phrase, the eternally blessed God, is referring to Christ. For you grammarians out there, they're all in the nominative case, okay? Christ is the eternally blessed God. Who's Paul saying he is? He's the one whose goings forth have been from of old, even from everlasting. Now, in John chapter 8, when Jesus was talking to the Jews, that is the Judeans, 
He said to them as they were challenging him, he said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. That is, Abraham by faith saw the day of Christ. Some have said, well, Abraham's with the Lord. Remember, he's the God of Abraham. God spoke said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Jesus told the Sadducees, he's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. And God said, long after Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had passed from this life, at the burning bush, God told Moses, uh, I, am, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He didn't say I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am. Why? Because they, they were with him. So some said that even could be the reference that Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it. He saw it when I came. But uh, many believe it's just a reference to Abraham's faith that he from afar off knew that God was going to send the Messiah, the Savior. So he says this. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? By the way, notice how they get it just exactly opposite. Jesus didn't say he had seen Abraham as a man, he's speaking. He said Abraham had seen his day. So, of course, the enemy is, you know, when people hate Christ, they never get anything right. You know, the devil can't bring himself to quote the Bible correctly. If you remember when he was tempting Jesus and he tried to quote scripture, he leaves a big chunk out deliberately. You know, when he said, oh, uh, cast yourself down off the pinnacle of the temple for it's written, he'll keep his angels, he'll give his angels charge um, over you, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Well, the part the devil left out was, he'll give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways, lest you dash your foot against a stone. In other words, be where you're supposed to be, doing what you're supposed to be doing, when you're supposed to be doing it, and you can trust God's providence but if you're leaping off of buildings and acting foolish and putting yourself in dangerous way you can't be claiming the you know i'm going to jump out of an airplane without a parachute all by myself nobody's going to help me and i'm sure i can land if guys have done this by the way landed on nets and stuff i'm not going to do it um but you know generally if somebody said well i'm going to do that i'm going to just trust god to get me down you say no 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 that's foolishness and what did jesus tell the enemy he said you shall not tempt the lord your god and then the devil left him. Kind of an interesting statement. Uh, Jesus was saying he wasn't going to tempt God. He's basically telling the devil, you shall, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And it's like, that's who Jesus is, okay? So they get it backwards. The Jews, they can't get it right because they, they, they're not right with God. And when you, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. The carnal mind, is that, that means a fleshly mind. A mind that's never been born again it is that it is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And then Paul says, so then those that are in the flesh cannot please God. It's in Romans chapter 8, by the way. So they said, thou art not yet 50 years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, verily, verily, or truly, truly, the Greek language actually is amen, amen. I say unto you, before Abraham was... I am. What? <laughs> okay. Before Abraham was, I am. They understood what, that, what he meant by that. Because what do we read in the next verse? Then took they up stones to cast at him. Why? Because they believed he just blasphemed. Uh, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them and so passed by. I love that. How did he hide himself? He just blinded him and walked through the midst of him. Okay? Jesus is God. In John chapter 10, Jesus said again, I and my Father are one. 
Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. I and my father are one. He didn't say we work together. He said, I and my father are one. So they pick up stones and stone him. Verse 32 of John 10 says, Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, because that thou being a man makest thyself God. They, even his enemies understood what he was saying, at least at that point. So we see this in John chapter 12. If you want to flip there, we'll read that one. Um, if you, you might know this passage from before. But in John chapter 12, at verse 37, John writes, But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe him. Because the problem wasn't that the signs were inadequate. The problem was their hearts were not right with God, and they couldn't see what was right in front of them. But he says that, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Note that, the arm of the Lord, that's Jesus. So who has believed our report, and to whom the arm of the Lord is revealed? That's from Isaiah 53. Therefore, John writes, therefore they could not believe. Notice, he's not saying they wouldn't. They, of course, they would not. He's saying they could not believe. True faith in an unregenerate heart is impossible. You have to be born again to see the kingdom of God. They hadn't had a work of regeneration done in them by the Holy Spirit through the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So John is writing this note. He said, this is John the Apostle writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Therefore they could not believe because Isaiah said again, He, God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Note that God sovereignly punishes wicked people. These were religious wicked people. By blinding them spiritually. That's why we really need to ask for mercy. Many of the Puritans had pointed out that often the punishment of sin is sin. Paul says in Romans 1, for this reason God gave them up to a debased mind into vile passions. But here it says, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. God won't be mocked. That's exactly what that means. Lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. God was done with them. They had sinned against his mercies and his patience. The Bible says, He that being often reproved and hardens his, hardens his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. They were in that condition. That's why we need to pray, Lord God, please soften my heart. I don't want to be in this category. And by the way, these people all thought they were right with God. They thought the one that wasn't right with God was Jesus, their Messiah. That's how blinded they are. That's what sin does. But then John adds, these things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Quoting Isaiah chapter 6, and we will look at that, that. You might be familiar with this. We've done this little study before, but it's super important right now. If you'll turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Now this is the same time as Micah, 800 years before Jesus came. And he writes and says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. 
And that's the word Adonai there. You notice it's not all capital letters, but it is a title for God. Okay? I saw the Lord sitting on the throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. That could be no other than the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh. Above it stood seraphim. Those are, that means flaming ones, okay, fiery ones. Note the plural ending there, im. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. That's Yahweh, Jehovah, Y-H-W-H. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of armies, literally. That's what a host is, an army. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, notice Isaiah didn't say, oh, wow, I'm, I feel so happy, okay? Uh, you know, he wasn't looking for gold to float down from the ceiling or something there, okay? He sees a true vision of God, and what's his response? Woe is me, for I am undone. When a sinful creature, even a forgiven one, is in the presence of the holy God, becomes aware of his own uncleanness, and that's just what happened. Calvin said, you know, you might put on a garment, a shirt, and think it's clean while you're indoors, then you walk out into the full glaring blaze of the daytime sunlight, and all of a sudden you realize what you thought was clean isn't clean at all. It's stained and dirty because now you can actually see it. That's what happens when men appear before God, apart from Christ, or even in Christ, looking at their own sin. Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Nobody says, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Tzabayot, that's the Hebrew. Okay, that gets translated into English. My eyes have seen the king, Jehovah, or Yahweh of hosts, he saw him. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my lips. This is a vision, so he's not actually getting physically burned here. Uh, he touched my lips with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. You've been purified. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Now he's, he's been purified, so what's his response? He doesn't say, Woe is me. He goes, Who will go for us? And he said, then I said, Here am I. Send me. Note that. He gets right with God. He gets clean. He wants to go. Send me. Let me serve you. And then he said, and he said, rather, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes and their ears heavy and their eyes and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Then said I, Lord, how long? Lord, how long do you want me to do this? Then he said, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man, the land is utterly desolate, the Lord has removed men far away, and, for, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. He's saying, until the captivity, this message needs to be preached. Um, yet, but yet a tenth will be in it, that is, there'll be a remnant, and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak, whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. So God said, I won't make a complete end. And he didn't. That's why the Jews were able to come back. So we read this, this Isaiah's vision of Yahweh in his temple. And what does John say? He said, John, he said, Isaiah said these things 
when he saw his glory. John chapter 12. I want to read it one more time for you. Not the whole passage, just that one verse. John chapter 12. When he um, speaks, John adds these, you know, after he quotes the passage from Isaiah, John writes, these things Isaiah said when he saw his glory. He's talking about Jesus and spoke of him. Jesus is Jehovah. He's Jehovah the Son, but he is Jehovah. He is God. He's no less God than the Father and the Holy Spirit. That's what Micah's message is, okay? Uh, Bethlehem. So they said, well, you make yourself God. We read Isaiah chapter 6. We saw in Matthew 2 how it's quoted. Um, so God chose the little things of the world to eclipse in glory the greatest things. Here's little Bethlehem. And, you know, here we are almost 2,000 years later. Well, at this point it has been 2,000 years. And we're singing the Lord's praises and all the, little, all the hymns, a you know, little town of what? Bethlehem. How still we see thee lie. Uh, so we see this. The low state of David's line when Messiah was born is pretty clearly implied in this, this, this prophecy. So his goings forth have been from of old, from of everlasting. So however little you may feel, God's pleased to use little things by way of application. You know, sometimes the church is like the moon and Christ is the sun. You know, and you can look and see that the, the moon gets its glory from the sun. The moon has no light of its own. It reflects the glory of the sun. The church is sometimes likened unto that. The church is like the moon. And sadly, if the world gets between the moon and the sun, you have an eclipse and you can have some darkness that, that happens. And sometimes the moon is in full blaze. And wow, I remember, you know, you can... When I was younger, being out in the country, get, I'd get my Bible open on a full moon lit night and be able to read my Bible by moonlight. I think you can still do that. I have to put on glasses now to do it, though. I do. But the moon sometimes is glorious, and then sometimes it gets eclipsed regularly. It's, it's like its glory wanes. But you know the sun? Sometimes there's an eclipse, but it passes quickly, okay? The glory of Christ is sometimes... We get blinded to it. Sometimes the church can get in the way of people seeing Christ. That's happened historically. But not to beat that analogy you know, to death here or beyond it. The point is, is that however little the kingdom of God may appear in this world, it is the kingdom of God. However despised Bethlehem was for being small, an insignificant, unimportant village, Later on, Nazareth, remember what uh, Nathaniel said when his brother Philip invited him to come meet Jesus, the Messiah? He said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Bethlehem was pretty much in that same category. This is what some little backwater town that um, doesn't have any real importance. Well, Bethlehem certainly did because the Christ came from there. Here we are, a small church. Well, what do we have that the world needs, okay? We have Christ, and as the word went out, we need to let people know, hey, you know what, Jesus is Lord. And there, you, you can come to a fellowship where you can be loved. But don't worry about coming to church. First come to Christ. You can invite people to church to hear the word preached. But you've got to come to Jesus. That's the main thing. So be encouraged, beloved. You might sometimes feel pretty small. But the things that are uh, despised by men, 
are important to God, and he can use them. So give yourself to Jesus and trust God's promise. And praise God. Can you imagine the encouragement they received when they heard this in the 8th century? Oh, wait a minute. So we're being troubled by the Assyrians. Later on, they're going to be troubled by the Babylonians, as the rest of that chapter says. But the Messiah is going to come. We can look back and say, he came. He's going to come again, too. Things are going to be made right. But he has come, and our sins have been forgiven because of him. So praise God. He who came forth from eternity came into this world for us. We have a whole lot of reason to thank God. And at Christmas time, when we kind of set this season aside to really focus on the birth of Christ, we have a lot to be thankful for and a lot to celebrate. So may God give us cheerful hearts as we look to the Lord. And let's celebrate the coming of Christ, the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has come, and we belong to him. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask you now to bless us, seal your word to our hearts, keep us in your love and grace. And Lord, those times when uh, it seems that your church and your purpose and your plans seem small and despised, even by other believers, Lord, sometimes by ourselves, help us to look to you, Lord Jesus Christ, you whose goings forth have been from of old, even from the days of eternity. We thank you that you came forth for us into this world. You took on our human nature. You are God incarnate, God manifested in the flesh. And with you and through you and by you, we worship the Father, you and the Holy Spirit, ever one God. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son who's saved us and given us a place in your kingdom. We pray, Lord, you'd work within us, take away our sins, purify our hearts, Lord, that we might be fit vessels to serve you, that we might be able to say, here am I, send me. Lord, your will be done, and we thank you, Father, now in Jesus Christ's name.